Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying Genesis as it leads into Exodus. It's a great sequel, and we hope to get you thinking about an old story in a new way. I want everyone to turn with me to Genesis chapter 32, beginning with the 22nd verse. If you have a table Bible, it's page 26, and I've got it on your screen. We're going to read together Genesis chapter 32, beginning with the 22nd verse, one of the most argued over passages in the whole Bible. How's that for a buildup? All right, well, let's, let's read it and go. The same night... Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, that's a river, and he took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket of the thigh muscle. And we'll stop right there. Before we start, I want to tell you that what I'm going to try to do with this is is merely one possibility. There are many ways to interpret this passage, so what I'm doing is not definitive, but I hope I can get you thinking about it in a new way. But first, let's recap what we know so far about the book of Genesis, where we journeyed last fall and where we are today. First of all, I want you to remember that I believe Genesis to be a poem. It's poetic in nature, and it has to be because Hebrew is a word-poor language. There are lots of gaps between the words, and so there are many, many interpretations of this story and indeed every story that we read in the book of Genesis. I ran across something in the newspaper that will illustrate for you the challenges to interpreting Hebrew because there's so few words in it, and now that, that Hebrew is used in the modern nation of Israel, they have to invent words from time to time for new ideas that they just didn't, didn't have any reason for in Bible times. So for this reason, the Israeli health minister was challenged with coming up with a word for junk food. They didn't have a word for it. They didn't have a word for junk food, so like Doritos and right, honey buns and whatever. He didn't, so he just called it McDonald's, I, right? Isn't that funny? And so the McDonald's people got mad because this, this, they don't want that to be the word for junk food. And so the, the academy who comes around and invents words for things came up with Zolet, which is a combination of words. It means cheap gluttony. Isn't that fun? So have a bag of cheap gluttony there. So that's, that's the nature of the, of the Hebrew language. The gaps between the words, and one word can mean many things. We need to remember that. Two, from the very beginning in the garden, 
which is the beginning of our story, the beginning of the garden, Genesis provides an ethic, which is both a guide and a protection for all of us. And and if you've got a pad on your table, I'd love you to take notes. That ethic involves three things, vocation, permission, prohibition. I'll go over these. Vocation, permission, prohibition. Vocation means something to do. God always made us to do something. No matter our age or our our circumstance, he always had intention for us to have something to do. No matter if we are laying in a bed of pain, we can pray for someone. We always have something to do. Permission means that we're also given the freedom to do it in our own way, with our own gifts, with our own heart, our own talent, our own our own our own style, if you will. We were all made unique uh, in, in God's kingdom. And so we're given something to do. We're given permission to do it. But there are some things that are forbidden to us. And those are the boundaries. Now, the way that I like to think about the God of the Old Testament and God's law or the Hebrew scriptures and God's law is to think of a big golf umbrella. As long as you stay under it, you're safe. I'm afraid we, we've made too easy of a sweep when we, when we look at the, the Hebrew Scriptures and we think that maybe that the, the God of the Old Testament is like a divine sheriff, a celestial lawman, right, that's just waiting for us to break one of his rules. Hey, you broke one of my commandments. Get the flu. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, instead, I, what, what I want you to see is God's law is protection, protection for us. And so vocation and, and permission and prohibition were given to us so that we don't, we don't get wet in the rain, so that we don't get hurt. Another thing you need to remember about the ethic, and by the way, each story that you, that you come across in Genesis reveals the trouble that you get into when you step away from this ethic, from this, this basic idea of God's law. Uh, if you only have two, you're skewed. If you drop one of these out and you're wrong. So for instance, vocation and permission, that's runaway greed, right? Or if you have vocation prohibition, that becomes a, a puritanical handmaid's tale type person, right? If you, only have, if you only have permission and prohibition, you're in your head and you're not getting anything done. You always have to have the three held in tension. So let's remember uh, that ethic, as you will, if, as we move through all the stories of Genesis and this one in particular this morning. Third thing, I want us to remember that we know more about Jacob than just about any individual in the Bible. Uh, There's more ink uh, printed about Jacob than anybody else. We see him as a, a boy a young adult, a man in middle age, and also very old. So that'll help us uh, place this story this morning. Okay, well, let's remember what we know about Jacob because this is how we finished right before the holiday break. Jacob was a twin, but he was second born. His name means trickster, and in time he steals his birthright from his brother Esau. Remember the story? The Bible is ambivalent about Jacob's tricks. Unlike other ancient sort of ancient stories, the trickster was always something to brag about. But in this case, the Bible is sort of, of sort of queasy, if you will, about Jacob's trickery. And in time, because of his tricks, he has to flee his brother Esau, who swears he'll kill him. And it's there on the run that he has a dream. He's all alone. Remember, he dreams of angels walking up and down a ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. Remember the song? There's angels going up and up and down a ladder. And I suggested to you that it's the possibility that that ladder is the Jacob who could be and the Jacob who is. See, in time, the trickster would have to grow. And part of the way that he would grow is he would live with his uncle Laban, and he too would be tricked into marrying a firstborn sister who he didn't love. He loved, he loved uh, Rachel, but he married Leah first because of a trick. So the trickster was tricked, which helped him mature. And after 20 years, he decides it's time to go home to face Esau. 
This is where we meet the story today. Now, remember, Esau swore to murder Jacob. And so when Jacob approaches the, the land of it, what was formerly his home where Esau lives, he learns that Esau has assembled 400 men. He's terrified. So he does two things. He sends gifts. And then some have suggested, did you catch when we read the beginning of the story, he sends his wife and his children across. Some have suggested that he sent them off as a body shield so that they wouldn't hurt him. <laughs> wow, what a guy. All right. So he sends gifts. He sends his family. And there in the dark by the river alone, he's frightened. Now, as so often happens when we are frightened, God comes to Jacob in the night. And I'm fond of saying that God can only speak to us really two ways. God can only speak to us when we're quiet and in times of pain. And the reason why people will come to me and say, gosh, Rich, I can't understand. I've been hurting so bad, but I've never felt God any closer. It's not because he met you there. It's because he was always there. You, you, just, you just weren't paying attention, right? The reason why God comes to us in silence and pain is that we're never quiet. That's why we feel him in the hurt. But there are dreams, and even the busiest among us, even the noisiest among us, right, even, even those of us who, who perhaps live in a world of noise, we too will have our dreams. And this is what happens to Jacob here. Or does it? Okay, here's the mystery that I want to unpack this morning and maybe get us thinking about it in a new way. Verse 24, if you read it carefully, says that a man wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. Now, there's no, there is no mystery to that word in the Hebrew language. The word is ish, and it is man. It is man. But the mystery in this is that Jacob calls the man God at the end. I've wrestled with God and striven, right? You've striven with God and humans and prevailed. So he's called God at the end, but at the beginning, he's called a man. Now, I want you to know that the Hebrews always felt comfortable living with mystery. It's part of having a poetic language. They, they had a... They had a, a, a quite comfortable time living with mystery and paradox. And one example of this we learned back in chapter 2 of last fall is that the first word of the Bible is beginning, in the beginning, Bereshit, and it begins with the Hebrew letter Bet, which is the second letter of the alphabet. And the rabbis would teach that it's fitting that our story would begin with the letter Bet and not Aleph because we cannot know the ultimate meaning of anything. That belongs to the realm of God. So, at some point, we're going to have to agree that it's a mystery that Jacob wrestles with a, with a man and not an angel uh, like, we've, like we've, we've treated it in art and like the art behind it, but rather ish, a man. I believe there are two possibilities. So, here are the two answers that I want to give you this morning and see if we can't see something we've never seen before. Um, the first possibility comes from the realm of science. The second possibility comes from the realm of history. So, here we go. In recent decades, neuroscience has identified two hemispheres of the brain with different functions. It's the whole, it's the whole left brain, right brain thing. It's not that old, but I will say that people become more and more convinced that this is really how the brain works. The left brain is for analysis and language and problem solving. It is practical and it is competitive, and it tends to suppress information that it cannot grasp conceptually. It's an important part of the brain. We cannot function without it. However, it needs the right hemisphere as well because the right hemisphere sees the big picture. It is creative. It's at home with metaphor. It can hold two ideas in tension. The right brain is essential for faith. So my point this morning is this. It is quite possible that Jacob is wrestling with his own soul, his own conscious, his expanded understanding. 
remember a couple of things. One, the mysterious man wrestling by the river is the same strength. They're the same strength. They have a standoff because I think it's Jacob wrestling within himself. And also remember what we learned back in chapter 2. And that is that God breathed into a man. God breathed into a man. This is part of the poem, which means that we are more than cells and bones and hair. We are more than our appetites. We have God within us, which is another way of saying that Jacob wrestled with the divine spark within him. I have an analogy that, that might help us think around this, uh, and this is part of the genius of, of our Bible and genius of the faith that we're grafted upon through Jesus Christ, the Hebrew faith. At, a, at the recently excavated Palace of David, my archaeologist friend Don pointed out that our whole Western ideas of laws and government were born in that one spot. I'm standing in the palace where David looked down upon a roof and saw Bathsheba bathing. He stole the woman and murdered her husband. Remember that? And this is what kings could do. All kings did this. Kings could have anything they want. They could have anyone whom they want. And so David was simply doing what kings uh, were always allowed to do. And yet God wanted to remind David that no one is above his law. Not even kings are above vocation, permission, prohibition. God's law this ethic, this guide, this new way of being human, this way of being healthy with each other and with our maker is hardwired into us. This is what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Okay, so that's science. Now, history is another possibility. Um, the exile of God's people is a huge, important backstory in the Bible, and it's more complicated than this, but a quick retelling will suffice. The exile. Some 600 years before Jesus' birth, Jerusalem fell. It, it, the best and the brightest were taken into exile in Babylon. Now, in human history up until this point, if a superpower were to rise, they would simply kill and destroy and vanquish conquered people. They would simply make them disappear from the face of the earth. But Nebuchadnezzar had a new idea of Babylon, and that was to deport them from labor in his super cities in the Fertile Crescent. Now, the Hebrews never thought that they would ever see home again. They never thought they would go back, so they got busy. They wrote Genesis during this time. We believe that Genesis was written down. It was told for a thousand years by the bedside of children, but it was codified. Much of the Bible that we have was edited and collected and took form while they, while they lost their temple and they lost their home, but they didn't want to lose their identity. But there's something interesting about the exile that's different than the Exodus uh, story in Egypt, which we'll cover when we finish the book of Genesis, rather, in a couple, couple of Sundays. What's different about the Egypt experience is this. We all know that one, right? We've seen the movie, God's people building, building uh, uh, pyramids and making bricks without straw and all the things that we grew up with, uh, laboring under the, under the yoke of the Egyptians and crying out in misery. We've got a lot of stuff in Exodus that talks about that. They didn't talk about the exile. They didn't talk about it. I think it hurt too much. I think some things hurt too bad to say. I think they were in a war for their own souls, I think they were war for their own identity. They were about, not only did they lose their land, they were about to lose who they were. And there was a battle between those who believed and those who gave up. Where was God when the city walls were breached? Where was God when we were taken in a trail of tears to a faraway land? Was this the God of losers? Did God even exist at all? If you've got a table Bible, 
I want to show you a couple of tantalizing clues about how they felt during the exile. And I want you to turn with me to page 430, which is Psalm 14. Or you can write it down, and you can also return to this podcast and remember it. But it's Psalm 14, and it's on page 30. And it begins like this. Fools say in their hearts there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Fools say in their hearts there is no God. That's true, but I suspect that there were enough fools around in Babylon that they had to address the problem. That's part of them losing their identity. People have just lost hope. Now turn to page 502, which is Psalm 137. Here we go. By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. This is deep despair. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Look, this is different than Egypt. This is not bricks without straw. This is not the whips of the Egyptians. This is just simply dying inside. They're losing their identity. They're losing who they are. And it's almost too sad to talk about it. It's certainly too sad to sing about it. And what would be their identity? A limp. A limp. Jacob gets a limp and he gets a new name. Truth comes with a cost. The trickster is no longer the trickster, but rather Israel, one who strives, one who questions, one who knows that truth can hurt, but God always has the last word. This would be their name. This would be their identity. And this would be our identity as well. For I like to say that that all the stories in our Bible are the same story. Are you going to be different? Are you going to be something else? I want you to turn with me if you've got a table Bible to Mark chapter 10 which is page 823, Mark 10, it's the 35th verse. Now, if you don't have a Bible in there, I'll read it to you. But let me tell you what's about to happen. Traveled to Capernaum today, and, and somebody, gosh, recently found a column in the mud, and they, and they stood it up. And the column has Aramaic carved upon it. It's really cool, and it reads this. Alphaeus, son of John, son of Zebedee, made this column, and may it be for him a blessing. That cool Alphaeus, son of John, son of Zebedee, made this column. It's, it's like an ancient postcard from Bible times. It's from the family of Zebedee. So this story is about the family of Zebedee, James and John, except it's not a very shining moment. Um, in, the, in the passage just preceding what I'm about to read to you, Jesus just tells his disciples that he's about to be tortured and he's about to be killed before rising again. Have you ever, have you ever spoken to someone and they just didn't listen Right? Okay, my son will kill me for this, but I'm going to use him as an example. So, so my son said to me the other day, he said, he said, Daddy, life is hard. Really? It is really? Is, is it really? Yes. He said, he said, they don't even care if you have a head cold. You just have to go to work. Really? All these years? He's finally listening, right? Okay, so I think Jesus felt that way with his disciples because he would say things to them, but they just couldn't hear it. Okay, maybe Copeland won't listen. All right, so uh, it's page 823, and it's um, Mark chapter 10 and the 35th verse. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, he's just told him he's about to be killed, okay? Just... This, this is presumptuous enough. And he said to them, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, 
you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. and The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. Now, when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John, of course. And when Jesus called them and he said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is gentle with these guys. He really should have taken them down, but he gently chastises them with their ignorance of both cup and baptism. But at the end, what all this means is, is that we are all saved by our scars. We all walk with a limp in faith. I mean, how else can we move from the left brain to the right brain? It's by our scars that we grow. You know, there's one more thing. If you've got a table Bible open or you've got your own Bible, I want you to take a pen and underline the word ransom. This is a study Bible, and we want to, we want to mark these up a little bit. The word ransom. It's a Greek word. It's a specific word, lethron, which simply means that, that, that this is freedom made possible by something outside of ourselves. This is release that's only possible by God. Freedom. Only outside of ourselves. And it's a freedom that we can only find when we own our scars. So Jacob gets a new name, Israel. And he goes home. You want to know what happens next? Esau swore to kill him. Had 400 men waiting. Jacob sends a gift. He sends his family. He spends a dark, dark night of the soul. He limps across the river. And Esau throws his arms around him and kisses him. And says, welcome home. The brothers are united. The family is whole. Only in time and only with scars. So hang in there, brothers and sisters. Life is hard, but we learn. Grace is abundant. God is faithful. And we can all go home. Amen. Oh,